Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. Revelation 3, how about that for a transition? Uh, we're, uh, we're talking about the church in Laodicea is the, uh, the name of the church. And um, uh, this is the seventh church in our series, but we have one more week to go in this series as well. So this week we'll talk about Laodicea. Next week we are going to be talking about the church in Hanford um, and what this means for us specifically as Jesus has been talking about all of these different churches. What is it that we need to hear uh, regarding um, the things that we're doing well and the shortcomings that we have and that sort of thing. So make sure you are, uh, you're here next week. But uh, when I was younger, specifically when I was in junior high, high school, that sort of time period, um, I, I was a camp veteran, a, a church camp veteran, right? I'm sure there's many of you in here who are like, yep, church camp vet. I was at summer camp. I was at winter camp. They did a spring retreat. I did the spring retreat thing. In hindsight, I think my parents were just like, yeah, we'll pay you whatever amount of money to go. Um, and so, uh, so I was a camp vet. And as you are a camp veteran, you recognize that during these weeks, kind of the camp speaker, every single, every single week is kind of has the same rhythm right of the things that he does like night one you get there and it's like kind of an introduction these are the things that we're going to be talking about kind of introduces the topic for the week which is good Monday uh, you get into a little bit of the meat a little bit meatier Tuesday or Wednesday is usually when a salvation message is going to come up I always said it's going to be Tuesday or Wednesday because that's when kids are going to be the most tired and they're emotional and they want everybody to be crying in their bunks at night right and so that was either Tuesday or Wednesday Thursday was usually uh, the opportunity for people who were already Christians to recommit their life to Christ. And then Friday, the topic of the message was normally, what are you going to do when you go down the mountain, right? Like that is, that's usually how it goes. And so I remember being in eighth grade and doing the camp vet thing. And I was like, oh yeah, Friday night, here's my goal. I'm going to I'm going to listen to this message about how I'm supposed to act when I get down the mountain. And then I'm probably going to go to Victory Circle where they have the fire and look up at the stars and do my best to sit next to my camp crush. And then once that's over, hug my camp crush. Don't kiss her because I'm a Christian. And so I'm just going to hug my camp crush, right? And then stay up way too late on Friday night, Saturday morning, go home and call it a day. But the speaker that night specifically, he completely and totally wrecked me that night. And it's because he talked about this passage specifically that we're going to be reading from in Revelation chapter 3. He hit me right between the eyes with a message that honestly still haunts me. And I think when we read the words of this passage, you'll understand why it was so haunting. Because I think if you pulled the demographics here and you talked about your faith and all of that stuff, I think for the most part, for the most part, most of us grew up in relatively safe homes, relatively safe homes, with parents who hopefully made sure we went to church and that sort of thing. I know for me specifically that, that I did my best, I, like when I was younger, I wanted to do my best to live, live in such a way like I, that I could live just enough to get into heaven, but also live in the world just enough to not be considered weird 
right? And that's just kind of the way that I grew up. My, my, when I was younger, you know, I was like, oh, I love Jesus, all the Christian stuff, VBS. And then junior high, some of those kind of feelings, that tension kind of comes into play, right? Where there's like, hold on, the Bible it is telling me to live this way, but everybody else is living this way and this type of music and all of that stuff. And so it's like, okay, well, I can go to church and perform in such a way that allows people to believe that I am living like a Christian. And then I can also uh, live in such a way, live junior high, high school, all of that stuff, that people still think I'm relatively normal. And I think that's true of all of us in different, different capacities, because I think there is barely a distinction between the way in which we live and the way in which non-believers live now. If you think about your own life or even growing up, right, we wear the same clothes, we talk in the same way, we watch the same things, we listen to the same music, we vote similarly. And if you were to have a conversation with the people in these walls as the, and then have a, have a conversation with people who are not in these walls, would you be able to tell a difference between those who are saved and those who are not? If someone were to talk to you, let's make it a little bit more personal, if someone were to talk to you and then talk to their unbelieving neighbor, would they have any clue that one of you follows Jesus and one of you doesn't? And that's largely what is going to be talking, what Jesus is talking about here in Laodicea. Everyone here is a lukewarm cultural Christian that Jesus is speaking to in Revelation 3. And it starts in verse 14. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one, of the, either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I've conquered wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this passage is actually a pretty famous passage. But there's only chunks of it that you recognize, right? Like there's that lukewarm passage, and that's the passage that the camp speaker spoke about and absolutely terrified me. But then there's that other passage, like, behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's even, like, great, great paintings of it, of, like, Jesus knocking on the door, and everybody's just kind of, like, going about their day and that sort of thing. But little do we know that this is part of, a, part of a letter that Jesus is sending to the church in Laodicea. And so Jesus starts off the same way that he starts off every single one of, his, of these seven different letters, that he starts by introducing himself. And this one, Jesus starts by saying, I am the Amen. And so when I first saw that, I got pretty pumped. I was like, oh, amen. That's like the period at the end of a prayer. That's awesome. It's like Jesus is the finality of everything. But then I started to do a little bit more of a, uh, of a, word, a word study here. And so this word specifically, this word amen, it's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word was then translated into Greek, and the Greek word was then translated into English. And so sometimes what happens is like the meaning of the, the word may, may be correct, but the meaning of it may be lost on us, on us just just a little bit. And so this is actually a unique title. Amen. 
that Jesus uses. It's an Old Testament title for God. It's actually in Isaiah 65, 16. In Isaiah 65, 16, God is twice called the, the God of truth. And in Hebrew, that idea, the God of truth, actually literally means the amen. And so it's a Hebrew word, which means truth. It means certainty. So when Jesus is introducing himself as the amen, he's saying, I am the truth. I am the certainty. It's something that is firm, that's fixed, that's unchangeable. And in reference to Jesus, it speaks to his sovereignty over all things, that he is always in control. He is the amen because he guarantees the truth of any statement that he has ever made because he is the God of truth incarnate. So anything that God has said, anything he has said, Jesus is the one to be able to bring those things to, uh, to fruition. Beyond that, Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness in the second portion of that piece of scripture. And this title kind of expands the first title a little bit, right? Jesus calls himself the amen, the truth. He only speaks what is true and he is completely trustworthy and he is completely reliable as the faithful and the true witness and so what we understand here, should understand here, is Jesus can be trusted to never, represent, never misrepresent the message that he's, putting, that he's putting forth. He doesn't exaggerate the truth. He doesn't suppress the truth. His trustworthiness extends, beyond, or extends all the way through his character. And so this description of Jesus is actually very appropriate beginning to this letter in the church in Laodicea because it warned them that Jesus had accurately assessed the spiritual condition in which he finds this church, in which he finds these people. And so because of that, God's promises are confirmed through every single believer's work in which we're going to see. And so then Jesus described himself beyond that, the beginning of the creation of God. And so as we're looking at this, Jesus spends more time in this letter describing who he is. And so we have to understand kind of what's going on in the city, in the church itself to really be able to understand. So what we can see here is this idea of, of the beginning of the creation of God. The English actually doesn't capture what is being stated here in the Greek. Again, it says the right words, but the meaning feels just a little bit, a little bit lost. And so the statement isn't saying that Jesus is the first thing that God created. That's not what it's saying, which some people kind of hang their hat on that. That's bad theology. That's not good good theology there, but rather it's actually saying that Jesus is the source of creation. And so through which his power, through Jesus's power, everything was created. And so this has to be stated here because of what's going on in the city in Laodicea. So what's happening there is there's a group of people who have decided that they have, they, they're, called, they're called Gnostics. It's the idea of, of Gnosticism. They taught that Jesus Christ was not only a created being, but beyond that, they're making this statement that they have secret knowledge of God, that if you do specific things, that you then can also possess that knowledge, okay? It's bad theology on their part. So Jesus is saying, nope, I am not, I am not the first created. I am the power through which everything was created, so Jesus, in introducing himself, is actually knocking the Gnostics here in a very real way. So what's going on here? Okay, what's going on? We're going to be in the classroom for just a second, then we're going to teach, okay? So the city here, Laodicea, prospered under Roman rule, okay? It was at a very, very strategic, strategic junction between two roads, a massive intersection of, uh, of two roads. Think like Sacramento-type intersections, right? I mean, where one road, one freeway intersects with another freeway. Last week I said, like, 
99 and 198. And I was like, that's not a very big junction at all, as a matter of fact. But there's a massive intersection going on here. And so Laodicea is this big area specifically for commerce, right? Big commercial city and became a banking center that brought in a ton of wealth to the city as well. And so because of the fact that that these things were true, they were so wealthy that the citizens actually paid for the reconstruction of the city after there's a massive earthquake in 60 AD. So think about that. There was a massive earthquake. Rome was like, hey, let us help you rebuild the city. And they were like, you know what, Rome? It's cool. We got enough money. We'll handle the rebuilding of the entire city ourselves. Go send your money somewhere else. And it wasn't in spite of Rome. They were just like, we've got all this extra money. We could probably do it the way that we want to do it, right? So that was one of the issues that they have going on is they were super, super wealthy. Beyond that, the city was also famous for this really soft, glossy black wool that it produced, wool. And so it sounds weird, right? You're like, why is the city known for its wool? Well, think about what people say when you say you're from Hanford. You're like, oh, you guys have good ice cream, right? Yeah. Same thing is going on here. Like, oh, Laodicea, what are they known for? Their wool is great. Cool. So all three of these industries, here there's one more industry as well. They produced a, a medicine called eye salve, and it was put on people's eyes to be able to help them see better. And so all three of these industries, finance, wool, and the production of eye salve, they're actually brought up into this letter. And Jesus talks about it here later on in these verses. So the city of Laodicea, just so you know, it's in ruins today. Uh, it's, it's in Turkey, within, and there's a city in Turkey um, right next to it that has like 500,000, 600,000 people. But when Jesus begins speaking to this church, Jesus gives them no compliments. Think about all the other letters that we went through is Jesus gives most of the church's compliments on, hey, you're doing this well. Jesus has zero commendation for this church at all. It doesn't even seem that a remnant of faithful believers are in this church. Jesus only has words of rebuke for this church. And so he begins by letting him know that he has been watching the church. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So if you kind of juxtapose some of this, the way Jesus taught his disciples earlier on in the Gospels, Jesus taught his disciples that deeds always reveals a person's spiritual state. Deeds aren't the way to salvation, but they are evidence of salvation, right? And so there's a slight difference there. So Jesus talks about that, that he says, you will know them by their fruits. Actually, when people come to me and they say, well, how do I know that they're saved? Oftentimes they're concerned about their kids or their spouse or whoever it may be. I just say, I can't know the condition of somebody's heart. Okay, but what scripture says is that you'll know them by their fruit. So what kind of fruit are they currently producing? Are there good things out of them? Are there good things coming out of them? Is it love, joy, peace, patience? Are they creating other disciples? Are they walking in such a way that people are going to recognize that they are a Christian? And if the answer is no, then we probably need to consider the spiritual state of ourselves or that person in question, right? And so Jesus kind of says the same thing. And he was saying that the deeds of this church indicated that it was an unbelieving church. He says, I know your deeds. You're not hot and you're not cold. And so Jesus kind of uses that, that metaphor, cold, hot, and lukewarm water, to describe the three different types of people. And Jesus says that those who are lukewarm, I will spit. The word here literally means, I think this is every pastor's favorite thing to say about this church. The word spit here actually literally means vomit. Vomit out of my mouth. He says, I will vomit you lukewarm people out of my mouth. Jesus was saying the church in Laodicea was literally making him sick. It's what Jesus says here. 
So it says hot people are those who are spiritually alive, right? Their lives are, are, are transformed by Jesus. They're on fire for the Lord. They desire to serve the Lord in a very real way out of their love for him and what he did for them on the cross through his death and his resurrection. Those people who are spiritually cold are those people who have simply rejected Jesus, and have said, no, I'm good, I don't believe in God, I don't go to church, I don't do any of those things that you Christians do, right? I'm an atheist. And it's interesting here that Jesus says, I would rather you be either one of those. He says, I would rather you either be hot or either be cold. Why? Because at least if you're cold, you're not a hypocrite. And if you're hot, obviously you're, you're expanding the kingdom of God in such a way that it's going to actually be beneficial. But you lukewarm folk, I'll vomit you guys out of my mouth. He doesn't say that about the cold people. He doesn't say it about the hot people. He says it about those who are lukewarm. They're in a category all by themselves, right? These lukewarm people, these are people who are not saved, but they do not openly reject Jesus. Think about our culture. These are people who are not saved, but they don't openly reject, reject Jesus. A lot of them think they're saved. And that's the concerning part. They attend church. They claim to know the Lord. They're very religious. If you read through the Gospels and you understand who the Pharisees are, they're very Pharisaical in nature because their religion is a self-righteous religion. It is not a relationship with Jesus. It is man-made. And so Jesus says that sort of religion literally makes them sick and wants to spit them out of his mouth. But his condemnation doesn't stop there. It actually gets worse. Like that is obviously like the famous part. But then Jesus, he's like, nope, I'm not done yet. You guys need to hear more from me. Because he condemns them for their self-righteous assessment of themselves, believe because they're rich. These are Jesus' blessings. All of that, all of that stuff. But they were absolutely wrong. And so spiritually speaking, these people are bankrupt. But then Jesus goes on, he says, not only that, you are poor, you're naked, and you're blind. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're naked, and blind. I don't know about you, but that's not exactly the way I want Jesus describing me. You know what I mean? Like when I get to heaven, I want, him to hear, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, not you are a wretched, miserable, poor, naked, and blind man, right? That's not exactly a good, good intro. But that's what Jesus says about them because they had bought into the lie of Gnosticism and they had believed that they had reached this higher level of knowledge. They I mean, they were just kind of keeping Jesus at bay. And so Jesus said, spiritually, you have nothing. Your worldly riches are not a sign of my blessing, but rather a stumbling block keeping you outside of my blessing because it makes you self-righteous. It makes you not think that you don't need God. It makes you think you don't need Jesus. And so he goes on and on and on about this thing. And the reason I talked about the idea of the wealth, the wool, and the eye salve is because if you look at Jesus and, the, and his words here, specifically in the following verses, the author of salvation actually played, the offer of salvation played on the three features that the city was most noted for. It plays on the idea of wealth, it plays on the idea of wool production, and it plays on the idea of their famous eye salve. And so we see Jesus offers them spiritual gold in the form of their wealth, spiritual clothes, and spiritual sight. So it says essentially that Jesus offers those who are members of this church the riches of salvation. So all three things he advises the church to receive and symbolize true redemption essentially. 
So first he counsels them. He says, hey, go purchase gold refined by fire so they can become spiritually rich. Not just wealthy because of the fact that you guys have great commerce and you guys have a ton of money in your bank account. Go purchase gold that's going to make you refined by fire so it can become spiritually rich. And the gold refers to the purity of Jesus who died for them, right? Christ's offering on the cross for them. And then he goes a step further. He says, and then also go buy, go buy these white garments. And the white garments, they represent the righteousness of Jesus that is given to, given to each of them as we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord. White is in very stark contrast to black wool. So he's talking about the black wool garments. Go buy some white spiritual garments. You need my redemption. Stop trying to do it in your own power. And then beyond that, Christ offering him true, true salvation, the eye salve to anoint their eyes so they might have true spiritual insight. This idea of supposed higher spiritual knowledge with the Gnostics they claimed to have was in fact lies that made them blind to the truth of God's word. This is why we have to read the Bible in context, right? For those of you who are like, oh, I'm just going to go and open a Bible and I'm going to pick a verse and I'm going to apply it to my life. Yeah, you know what I salve is? You understand what Jesus was actually talking about here? You understand black shiny wool and all that stuff? That's why it's so important for us to recognize who these words are for and then recognize the heart behind this message and then be able to apply that to our lives. But like all unbelievers, these church members desperately needed Jesus to open their eyes so they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they would receive the forgiveness of their sins, right? But here's the issue. If they refuse to repent, Jesus is simply gonna vomit them out of his mouth. But his desire, according to Peter is that all would come to repentance and salvation. Jesus even tells the members of this church to, be, to like, like, repent. Repent and come back to me. It is not too late. Please repent. And so up to this point, they have chosen to simply be religious. And Jesus is like, nope, that's got to change. That doesn't work. There has to be a turning from sin to serve the Lord because of an overwhelming hunger and a thirst for righteousness to serve him. Jesus talked about that. And so salvation always has to begin with repentance and agreeing with God that we are sinners, that in and of ourselves there is like, there's nothing that we can do to change our own spiritual state. It's only through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we can be reconciled to God. And then Jesus says beyond that, he promises that the one who overcomes... The one who repents, acknowledges Jesus as Lord of, their life, Lord of their lives, that that is the one who has agreed with God that they are a sinner deserving hell, but believing that Jesus paid the penalty. What does that person get to do? To the one who overcomes, sit on my throne with me. We get the opportunity for those of us who overcome to not just like float up on clouds and play harps one day. We get to, I mean, which would be great in itself, Right? I'm sure sitting on a cloud would be awesome. But beyond that, we get the opportunity to rule alongside Jesus and rule alongside God the Father as well. And it talks about that in a ton of different places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6.3, 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 5, Revelation 20. talks about the idea that as we overcome and as we live good and faithful lives, we get the opportunity to rule with Jesus. And so he closes this seven and final letter to the churches with this now familiar exhortation. Just the idea that he who has ears, let him hear. 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus wants us to hear these things. He wants us to obey these things. But let's go back to why this was so haunting for me and continues to be haunting for me even as I'm a 38-year-old. Because in this letter, this entire letter, is why it's so concerning to me what the camp speaker had said. Because for me, so oftentimes I get so wrapped up in being religious, I get so wrapped up in doing the right things that I am supposed to do that I simply forget that Jesus didn't simply come so we could all be religious. Jesus didn't simply come for us to be able to come to church, grab a donut, get some free childcare for an hour and 30 minutes by the time I'm done. I'm just kidding. For however long it takes to feel good about ourselves, check off our spiritual checklist for the week and then go home. It's not what Jesus had for us. It's not what Jesus intended for us. Oftentimes we treat him like an acquaintance simply knocking at our door. And that's what he says here. And every once in a while we tell our friends, right, oh yeah, my friend Jesus is out there who's conveniently out there every time that we need him, right? And we'll bring him in when it suits us, oftentimes. Friends come over. You go to church? Oh, yeah, I go to church. There's Jesus right outside my door. He's sitting right there. You want to invite Jesus in for a little bit? Invite Jesus in? Talk about Jesus? They go home. All right, Jesus, I'll see you next time. I need you. You're going to hang out at the door, right? Yeah. I'm going to consistently be waiting for you, not just to make you savior, not just to make me savior of your life, but to make me Lord of your life. And so the whole idea of Jesus as Savior, that is good. That is step one. But if you stop at step one, the idea of Jesus just being the Savior and not submitting to Jesus as Lord of your life, all of a sudden, that lukewarm faith really begins. Where most of us think, yep, I go to church. I know who Jesus is. He's right there. He's, he's there. He's there when I need him. That's a great way to get you one foot in and one foot out. And Jesus would rather vomit you out of his mouth than be treated like an acquaintance whose presence is acknowledged only when necessary. That's why we pray the ABCs every week when we talk about being part of the kingdom of God. And the last part of the ABCs is choose to follow him every day. Right? The majority of people in here admit that they're sinners in need of a savior. The majority of people in here admit that they believe that Jesus went and died on the cross for them. But the majority of the people in here also don't choose to follow him every single day of their lives. It's where we fall short. And it's the idea of sanctification. Like, I get it. We're in the process of becoming more holy, and I don't expect you to live your life perfectly because I don't live my life perfectly. No one's going to live their lives perfectly on this side of eternity. But we do have and need the opportunity to choose to follow him every single day. That lukewarm faith that's vomit us out of his mouth living. Our church, just like, imagine what it would look like if we as a church decided simply to do what it is that we claim that we believe, right? As you read through scripture and you're like, oh yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that the Bible was inerrant and everything that it teaches. And so if that's the truth, then why don't we live as such? Is it because we're too busy with one foot in and one foot out that I don't want to stick out and make other people feel uncomfortable when really it's your own self-preservation that you're worried about, that it's actually you don't want to stick out and make yourself feel uncomfortable? 
Like what if, like what if, what if we simply just said, Jesus, stop, stop being on my porch, stop knocking on the door, and come take up residence inside of my home. Come take up residence inside of my life. Jesus, I want you to be with me at dinner when all my family's around. I want you to be with me as I'm driving in my car. I want you to be with me as I'm sitting on my couch watching TV. Like Jesus, just like come be, come and be Lord of my life. And if we did that, our lives would look drastically different. And as our lives begin to transform, that change that we should begin to see in our community would be palpable then. That if we simply did what we said, what we believe, our faith and the faith of our family would be transformed overnight. Our communities would be changed so quickly. Right? One of the cornerstones here at FBH is the idea that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people in your life to make a difference for the kingdom of God. We call that oikos. That God has placed people in your household, your sphere of influence. But if we aren't living in such a way that other people can discern the fact that we're Christians, what shot does your oikos have in knowing Jesus? They don't. Because as we are living our lives in such a way and doing the things that we, we know to be true, that's evidence of our faith. Show, I will show you their fruits. And so we need to be living in such a way that allows people to know that we love Jesus. That if we lived our lives according to his word and his examples, our homes would begin to transform. Our places of work, our kids' schools, our neighborhoods will begin to recognize Jesus actually has the transforming power that he claims to have. Why? Simply because we allow the spirit to continue to transform us as we say, Jesus, be Lord of my life, be Savior of the world. Thank you so much. I repent of my unbelief and I'm going to choose to follow you every single day. That's what the church in Laodicea was missing and my fear and my concern is that happens in churches all the time all over the western world because of the fact that we don't need to rely on faith we've got medicine so do the Laodiceans we've got clothes on our back so do the Laodiceans and we have more wealth than any amount of people ever had in the history of the world so do the Laodiceans we're talking about the idea of living a lukewarm faith. It's just simply the idea of deciding that am I going to do what it is that I claim I already believe or am I going to get vomited out of the mouth of Jesus one day? Amen? Let's pray. God, that's a rough, that's a rough one, God. But God, we're thankful for your warnings. We're thankful for, we're thankful for you you trimming these churches, condemning these churches so we can see the warning signs that we have as well. These warning signs that, that allow us to, to simply love you better and walk in such a way that we are becoming more and more like you. So Father, I pray you'd continue to go before us, especially those of us, well all of us, but those of us who have committed our lives to you, or at least said, Jesus be Savior of my life, but really haven't taken up the idea of you being Lord of our lives and submitting to you and who you are for the rest of our lives. God, I pray we as a church would live under that submission to you. God, I pray we wouldn't be a church with lukewarm faith. 
I pray we would be a church that is hot for you. That our community would know, that our families would know, that our oikos would know, that the transforming power that your son has is real and, it's, and it would be evident in our lives. And so for those of you in the room who have not yet said yes to Jesus, and maybe this is your opportunity to do so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. And you think, I don't want to be lukewarm in my faith. Or maybe you need to re-up. If that's you, you can simply pray along with me and say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I fall short. But B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. That all of my sins, he took the credit for. And C, that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life, that my faith would not be lukewarm. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.